I remember my first day on the wards, it was a surgical rotation and the consultant was a very dapper man and a jocular. But I remember being there with two of my colleagues, um, one of whom I was friends with, the other I hardly knew. And he came in and he goes, students, not more bloody students. Hello, I'm Professor Patrick Murray. I'm delighted to host this second series of the UCD School of Medicine podcast series, MGA Clinical Influencers. No doubt lots of our listeners are familiar with the MGA or Medical Graduates Association. For those of you who aren't, the MGA plays a vital role in keeping you, our School of Medicine graduates, in touch with fellow alumni across Ireland and around the world. The MGA is your organization, offering you a lifelong partnership with the UCD School of Medicine. During this podcast series, graduates will bring us on a trip down memory lane, describing their time in UCD, and on some occasions in other schools of medicine, along with their experiences as junior doctors. They will discuss their specialty areas, highlighting some of the challenges they've encountered during their careers, and how they shared their expertise and helped coach others. On a personal level, they'll discuss how they manage a decent work-life balance, and will share recommendations for books, music, holidays, and other aspects of their lives. Our interviewees have compelling stories to share that will spark your curiosity about life and the clinical specialty they've chosen. I'm Pat Murray, Professor of Clinical Pharmacology at UCD and a consultant physician at the Mater Misericordia University Hospital in Dublin. I'm a UCD School of Medicine graduate from 1988. Following internship at the Mater Hospital, I completed a residency in internal medicine in Minneapolis, then moved to Chicago, where I underwent fellowships in nephrology, critical care medicine, and clinical pharmacology at the University of Chicago Hospitals. Following my training, I was a faculty member at the University of Chicago until 2008, when I returned to Ireland to work in UCD and at the Matter Hospital. In 2011, I was appointed Associate Dean for International Affairs of the UCD School of Medicine, and I subsequently served as Dean and Head of the School of Medicine from December 2012 to June 2018. I'm currently Director of the UCD Clinical Research Centre. Today in our MGA podcast, I'm very pleased to be in conversation with Professor Geraldine McCarthy, who's a graduate of the UCD School of Medicine. Ms. McCarthy completed her fellowship in rheumatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, where she developed her interest in calcium crystal deposition diseases. Her research has focused on the biological effects of calcium-containing crystals in degenerative joint disease, as well as in atherosclerosis and breast cancer. She was promoted to Associate Professor of Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin in 1996, and she remained there until her return to Dublin in 1999, when she was appointed consultant in rheumatology at the Matter Hospital and at Kappa Hospital. And she continues there running a busy clinical practice and clinical research program to this day. She teaches as part of the UCD School of Medicine, and she was the first clinician appointed full clinical professor of medicine through the clinical pathway in 2009. Professor McCarthy has current international collaborations in the UK, USA, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, particularly in relation to calcium crystal deposition diseases, as well as gout. She is the author of over 170 publications, including original manuscripts, editorials, reviews, and book chapters, and has spoken at many national and international meetings. She has been winner of several research and teaching awards. In 2021, she received the RCPI Institute of Medicine Brian Alton Medal, and in 2022, she received a Lifetime Achievement Award from, from GCAN, Gout, Hyperuricemia, and Crystal Associated Disease Network. Welcome to the podcast, Geraldine. It's great to see you. Thank you very much, Pat. It's great to see you too. So uh, we'll, we'll get started easy. Um, we'll take it to the, the, the standard opening question. 
When did you decide to be a doctor and how did you come to the conclusion this was for you? My earliest memory of wanting to be a doctor was the age 11 or 12. And I remember asking my mother, what do you do to become a doctor? What do you study? And she said, you study medicine. And I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. So it was a very early wish of mine. And frankly, I'm not sure what else I would have done. And was there anyone you were modeling yourself on or just an idea that came to you? First of all, there's a very strong family history of medicine. I suppose the closest person to me would have been my father, who worked really, really hard. He was one of those old-fashioned, if you like, county physicians. His name was Donald McCarthy. He died a few years ago, but uh, he uh, worked in Port Leash and he did obstetrics, pediatrics and general medicine. And his two colleagues were a surgeon and an anaesthetist. And that was it. So you might think it would have been hell on a stick, but he was really happy. He really liked his job. Now, with the passage of time, um, he was able to uh, be relieved of the obstetrics and the pediatrics because more consultants got appointed. But he really liked his job and he continued to work um, until he was 80, really, um, in various locum positions. And he worked after he retired, he worked in um, Iraq in the Ibn Abattar Hospital, which was run by um, an Irish company, I think. So he, he would have been my main influence subconsciously. Um, his father before him was the county surgeon in Sligo. And there were a lot of other medics in, in the pre- preceding generations. So I guess it's a gene yeah. of some sort. But you, I mean, you saw a lot of hardworking people. It didn't put you off. No, it didn't. So uh, obviously you, you proceeded, went through with your choice. You, you came to UCD. I did. Um, were you the um, Belfield for a year, Earls for Terrace combination? Yeah, absolutely. And what do you what do you remember about either either place from those early years? Belfield, uh, even though it's enormous and I was quite big there too. So um, I remember being in the science block, um, but I had a lot of friends from school that were in the arts block. So I would have spent a fair bit of time in the arts block, socialising and so forth. But it was really only when I got to the terrace that I felt really part of medical school because it was a, sort of a historic place. It was intimate. The architects were there. Also, it was a great way of getting to know people in the year ahead of you or, or the year below you. There was a big library there that we used to study in. Uh, there were no computers. It was all index medicus. So you were relying on your textbooks. There was, uh, if you wanted to research something, it was really very difficult but I suppose uh, an advantage was there wasn't so much to be learned compared to what people have to learn nowadays. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit easier, I think. But it was really great fun. And there were lots of social aspects to it. And all in all, I have very fond memories of being in the terrace. Um, a lot of people used to go into the Ivy Gardens or you could go down to Bewley's for coffee. Mm-hmm. So being near town was really nice. I know I'm aging myself talking about it like and, that. Uh, and you managed not to mention Hartigans, which is very disciplinary. I wasn't in Hartigans as much as some of the lads, I have to say, but I was in there all right. Yeah, I've, I've been there. Uh, in terms of the, the terrace itself and the, the preclinical subjects, did any of them take your fancy in particular, any subject you like more than others? I have to say, I really preferred my medical course when I got into the clinical years. And in fact, during the preclinical years, we'd have occasional lectures in the various hospitals given by consultants. And 
they were by far the ones that I enjoyed the most, I have to say. So uh, then when you got to the clinical years, where, where did you do your core rotation? At St. Vincent's Hospital. I remember my first day on the wards, it was a surgical rotation and the consultant was a very dapper man um, and a jocular. But I remember being there with two of my colleagues, um, one of whom I was friends with, the other I hardly knew. And he came in and he goes, students, not more bloody students. And I think he was, he was kind of joking, really. Um, but my poor, one of my poor colleagues fainted afterwards. She, she got such a fright. So that was the way of it. It was actually good fun. Well, it's a, it was a learning experience for everyone. It was. It was first rotation. And then in, uh, when, when you did your peds, obs and psych, where did you do those? So various places, actually, um, both Crumlin and Temple Street. And I remember being in whatever psych unit was attached to St. James's Hospital at the time. I remember Ivor Brown, the very famous consultant, being there. Vergemount, I was there. Not, I, not a huge memory of, of the psychiatric rotations, except for they were very interesting. And actually, I remember one of the first psychiatric lectures we had was by the professor of psychiatry in the matter. He gave a phenomenal first lecture to us about psychosis mm. and he interviewed a patient and I remember her, all the voices she was hearing and there was a doctor in the fridge and all sorts of stuff. Malone, Professor Malone, wow. um, he was terrific. Yeah, so it didn't get you into psychiatry then? No, I mean, I'm half a psychiatrist in my current job. Every chronic disease, I guess, yeah. has to be managed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need to be tuned in. I mean, I say that tongue in cheek, but it's certainly you need to be very aware of the whole person in rheumatology. I'm interested how you transitioned from, I don't know where you did your internship or your house officer years, but um, when did you decide rheumatology was, was it for you? I'm an accidental rheumatologist, actually. When I finished my intern year, I was a little bit shocked because now I had to make a decision about what to do next. And, and a lot of my colleagues knew what they were going to do. And in fact, nowadays, everybody knows what they're going to do by the time they start medical school. There were a lot of things I knew I didn't want to do, but I varied from general medicine to I thought of radiology at one stage. And um, in my um, I was a senior house officer in rheumatology for six months. I did neurology for six months, but then I was in Wexford and Dundalk doing general medicine for, for six months each. So um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I did know I didn't want to be a surgeon, um, even though I thought it would be very interesting, but I, I just didn't think it was for me. I didn't want to be an, an anesthetist. So when we eventually, my husband and I um, went to the United States, I actually found an opportunity in rheumatology. We ended up in a uh, in the Medical College of Wisconsin where uh, Dan McCarty was, and I'd heard of him during my uh, SHO years. He was being the editor of the big textbook that was in the department and all of that, but I hadn't made the connection that he was in the Medical College of Wisconsin. So um, at the time that we arrived there, he was trying to recruit junior doctors from Ireland, which he subsequently did, and there are quite a few eminent names now back in Ireland who rotated through there. And so that's the, con the connection happened there. But then I found an opportunity to work there and to do my fellowship. And um, I was really lucky because I was hand trained by him and I still hear his voice. Um, I really learned an awful lot. Uh, yeah, I do remember there was a, a lot of people went through Wisconsin subsequently, yeah. really. 
I think you, you were one of the earlier. Yes, yes. With the department. The program was fabulous. It was a venture research based fellowship. So the fellowship was to be for three years. Now, bearing in mind, I had already done six years of medicine in various capacities in Ireland before I went there. I was quite experienced. So I started my fellowship and it got into crystal deposition diseases because it was kind of the world center at the time. And um, I had previously considered research as something that had to be done, but not something that I particularly wanted to do. But in any case, I got into the lab and um, started doing bench research and then wrote a grant. And so after two years of a three-year fellowship, I got um, a grant from the Arthritis Foundation uh, of, the, of the United States. And so I was able to actually go on faculty at that point. So I kind of got a two-year fellowship instead of a three-year fellowship because of this grant. And how long did you stay on faculty? So I was on faculty from 91 to 98 when we came back to Ireland. And then I came back to no job, actually. But I had a grant from the U.S. Department of Defense to study calcification and breast cancer. So I set up a lab in the College of Surgeons and that was really helpful because by the time I got my uh, substantive post in the matter, I was already set up in a lab because yeah. I think it's really hard for people when they come back to a, a, a job uh, from abroad and they hit the ground running in the, in the clinical sense. It's really hard to, to set up the lab without protected time. And the, the U.S. federal government, let, even back in those days, let you bring the funding. Yeah, I was able to hire a postdoc and I had enough money to run a lab. It was great. And uh, despite all of the clinical rheumatology and the matter and uh, the general medicine you've been doing, you, you managed to be research active through your whole career. I have, yeah. Yeah, don't ask me how, but I have, yeah. And it's kept me going, I have to say. It keeps life really interesting. And it's, uh, is, is it something that, uh, I mean, you've, you've obviously thought a lot about the Irish system, I'm sure, at this point. Uh, yeah. what, what would you do to help people have an easier time keeping a research career uh, compared to what you had to do? I think I had it easy. I think it's much harder now, honestly. The grant writing has become so much more complicated. Um, as far as I can see, so much more paperwork. The whole GDPR stuff is making our research that's ongoing really, really difficult. Um, I'm part of a, a big grant one of my colleagues is running. And what she has been through to try and get it off the ground. I think doing research was much easier when I was doing it. So you'd, you'd yeah. agree that people probably need more protected time now than they ever needed if, if they're going to do it right? Absolutely. And that's that's very difficult. Yeah, well, hopefully our system is headed for more of that. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I know there, there, there are these various fellowships you can do through the HRB, etc. Um, but I think it's really nice for people to be able to do research on the ground. Like we're doing a lot of clinical stuff even still in our department. And then the other thing is to try and link with bench research people in other departments or in other universities. I've a very great colleague, um, Professor Ashling Dunn from um, Trinity, and I've been able to continue my uh, BCP crystal research with her because she has received grants and with my input as the clinician, we've written a lot of papers together. 
And that, that is the current model, is having teams as yeah, opposed to people absolutely. having to do it all themselves. I think it's the only way to do it. Better, better output, I think. Yeah. So uh, in the course of this, uh, we, we generally ask the same question, uh, assuming that people do, but uh, how do you manage your work-life balance? Well, how do I do that? Well, I just do. I suppose I'm blessed with a, with, with a lot of energy. Um, I think you have to be really efficient. So I try to get things done decisively so that I've time to have a work-life balance. When my children are young, I suppose it was more of a work-children balance than a work-life balance, even though they were a wonderful part of life. Um, but I think you can't have it all. So I didn't indulge much in my own hobbies when my children were small. Uh, but I always kept fit by running because I think running is a really efficient way to keep fit because you just put on your gear, out the door, back in. So, um, but now my work-life balance is great. Um, I am a member of a book club. I'm a member of a choir. I play golf. Do a lot of work at home um, to do with academic stuff. So you kind of fit that in at weekends and at night. You have, you have to be very flexible, I think. Well, certainly uh, you, you've obviously organized yourself and, and managed to do that over the years. Uh, when when you did the running, did you do it early in the morning or late at night, or how, how did you manage it when you had the young kids? Yeah, and so put the dinner on, out the door. Yeah. Uh, assuming that there was somebody else in the house. Obviously, I didn't neglect the kids. Although when they were a little bit older, when they were studying, doing their homework or something, yeah. And then weekends. Uh, so I would try to go out about four times a week, and then do the odd five k race. Maybe I'd never do more than ten k at a time. So it's not marathon running. So in the, in the, in the current activities, you were saying that there's a book club. What, what's the book club reading at the moment? One is The Art of Losing. It's a book translated from French and it was written by Alice Zenitar. And it has won multiple awards. And it's um, about the experience of immigration from Algeria to France. And it covers three generations. And it's beautifully translated and written. And I suppose as somebody who has been an emigrant, uh, although in far better circumstances, it was covering um, Islam a bit and also the experience of being a big shot in Algeria, siding with the French and having to move to France and, and the outcome of that. So that's, that's a really great book. Did you recommend that to the book club? or was No, that... somebody else did. Actually, the great thing about the book club is that you get to hear of books that you mightn't otherwise have heard of. Another great one is Trespasses by Louise Kennedy, who's a Belfast writer, and it, it was all set up north. And it's based around an, an affair this Catholic girl has with an older Protestant married man and all the implications of that. Very good book. So there's two definite recommendations. Got recommendations yeah. there. And I'm, I'm currently reading Sebastian Barry, Old God's Time. He's, he's superb. Are you into films? I love films. I, we were really taken with on Colleen Kuhn and I'm really sorry I didn't win the foreign movie award. Uh, I feel like sometimes these things are a bit political and I suppose um, they wanted it all quiet on the Western Front to feature to kind of highlight the awfulness of war. Yeah. But I, I, I thought on Colleen Kuhn was brilliant. In terms of other activities, uh, I don't think we've ever spoken about how you spend your holidays. Do you, anywhere you go typically or do you change every year or how do you do it? We, we tend to travel to various places. Uh, for example, we found ourselves last summer in the north woods of Wisconsin, uh, which was absolutely stunning. We were in this amazing cabin on a lake um, and the, we'd go to sleep at nighttime with the sound of the 
crickets and it was just a really different experience. Um, another great one, my husband loves to scuba dive. So we went with some American friends to um, Cozumel, which is Mexico. Beautiful. I snorkeled. I don't I don't scuba dive, but the food was amazing. Um, we visited our daughter who was based in Scottsdale through the BST program mm-hmm. and uh, Arizona. Stunning. So you've obviously been a lot of places, done a lot of things. Do you have a bucket list you maintain and what's next? Not really. I'm really enjoying my life at the moment. Um, I don't really have a bucket list. I know that sounds very boring. No, I just want to keep well and fit and enjoy what I'm doing. And I'll stop doing what I'm doing when I'm not enjoying it anymore. Well, I, among other things, I, I've uh, obviously been reviewing your career and I'm aware that you're, you're the first female clinical professor we've had and the first clinical professor of any kind. Well, I think that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah. You've you had a couple of firsts there, at, yeah. uh, which are, is a major achievement and been a role model, I think, to a lot of people in how to get research done while teaching, practicing and being a leader in the health system. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I consider myself a fairly low key person, um, so I don't know how much of a, a an influence it has been. But I, I really was very happy and pleased to be the to be the first and to be a woman, because, you know, I think we all know that historically it's been harder for women to achieve in medicine because the data is there. Um, I can see women doing much better now. Um, I don't think it's perfect yet, but um, it, it, they are doing better. I was the first female publicly appointed rheumatologist also. Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, it's important to, to have all those trailblazing achievements behind you. But um, uh, do you think about legacy? And- yes, absolutely. My legacy, I hope, will be the trainees that I have worked with. I love when I write my CV, the na- their names and they're a consultant now type of thing. Um, I have mentored more men than women, actually. But that's not deliberate. It's you, you people show an interest and they come and you get along well with them. And um, uh, like my current colleague in the matter, uh, John Stack, uh, he his last job was in in Ireland before he went to London was with us and then now he's back working with us and you know that's brilliant because we've done an awful lot of writing together and so forth um I I like to help as many women as I can but they need to show interest in rheumatology in the first place and we're having difficulty advertising rheumatology as a great specialty because it's not a core specialty in the um syllabus really so it's only when people get exposed to us that they realize how fascinating it is i mean the things we can do for people the drugs that we it's have it's been dramatic hasn't it no it's absolutely dramatic but if you if, if it's out of sight out of mind and i can't fathom i think we're getting i think we're getting a bit of traction now because professor suzanne donnelly um who who's here at ucd is a rheumatologist and i know anybody who's um comes in contact with her is inspired by her but I, I, if, if anybody's listening to this, please consider rheumatology because you're missing out. Yeah, that's not advertising. That's just uh, yeah, advocacy. Fact, advocacy, exactly. So uh, as we start to finish up, uh, maybe can you look back and say if you saw yourself as an early medical student and you could talk to yourself now, 
what would you have advised yourself to do anything different or would you have done the same thing again? A bit of both. Um, I might have said to myself to not worry as much as I did. One of the things I did that worked well was to, there was a little bit of go with the flow. So follow the opportunities as they arise and not be too tunnel visioned that you don't see the opportunities. And I think I did that well. So uh, if I was 24 again, I'd say you did that well. That was a good idea to, to, to not be too focused because that's how I ended up in rheumatology. Honestly, I didn't grow up wanting to be a rheumatologist and I think I would have really missed out. In fact, I was more interested in dermatology, to be truthful. And um, But this is where I found myself and definitely was the right one for me. Well, I think that's a, that's a great place to finish and uh, it's been a lot of fun spending time speaking with you. Um, I'm glad you were able to come in and talk to us. Thank you very and, much. And uh, look forward to seeing you again back at work. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Geraldine.